Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. To learn more about Anchor Church or to hear the entire message, go to www.anchorchurch.life. Jordan, Earnhardt, Brady, Elway? They're the greatest, the GOAT. This series, we're going to learn what made Jesus the greatest of all time. Let's give Jesus an ovation of worship real quick this morning as a thank you to him for being the greatest of all time. He is the greatest of all time. And so the whole point of this series as we get into a lot of different things is to be able to discuss what got him there, what got him to that place and what got him to that point. But before we do that, I put out a little uh, image on social media the last couple days and I asked who is the greatest of all time in basketball? And I had three images. One of Michael Jordan. Okay, all right, well, this is interesting. Two of Kobe Bryant. Okay, all right, now one of Michael Jordan. Okay, there we go, that's what I was thinking, all right. And then the third one was LeBron. Wow. <laughs> wow. All right, anyway. Um, so we're talking, about, we're talking about the greatest of all time. In basketball, a lot of people would say that it's Michael Jordan. In uh, pop music, Michael, Michael what? Jackson? <laughs> no, JT. You know who my guy is. <laughs> uh, and then in swimming, Michael Phelps, right? It's the Michaels, man. It's the, it's, the, it's the three Mikes. So for those of you, we have like 14 Michaels that go to this church. Things are looking up for you guys. Uh, but no, it... It, uh, when we look at all three of these guys, or we look at different people that are in different areas, we would say they are the greatest of all time in whatever aspect that they're doing. Greatness doesn't just happen by accident, right? Greatness takes energy. Greatness takes effort. Greatness takes a lot of different things to add up before we get to the point where we could call him, call them the greatest of all time. And so when we talk about Jesus, there's a lot that goes into his life uh, when he was born, as we celebrated in December, as a baby in a manger, was he the greatest? Yeah, he still was the greatest, but he was the greatest yet to come. And, uh, and I think in all our lives, in each and every single step that we take, and every, um, every obstacle we face, all the different things that we go through in life, the greatest is yet to come for us, because we have a Savior who gave it all for us, 
who died on the cross for our sins, which is what made him great. But the greatest thing that he ever did was come back to life three days later. And that's what has made him the greatest of all time because he is saving us from our sins. He is our savior. That's why we call him our savior. So he's the greatest of all time, but there was a lot of things that got him to where he was. And so we're going to talk about that today. But um, one of the things that I want to, uh, to say is, is, is that Jesus cannot be denied as the greatest. Even somebody that would say that, um, that, that they wouldn't necessarily believe in Jesus as, 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 as Messiah, you can't deny the greatness that came from Jesus. The fact that we are still here talking about a man that lived over 2,000 years ago makes him great. Another thing that makes him great is the fact that there are orphanages, there are hospitals, there are schools, there are all different things that are happening in his name all around this world. And this is for a man that lived 2,000 years ago. As a matter of fact, that it is 2019 right now, 2019. The reason why we even do the year the way that we do it is because of Christ's birth. It is A.D., after death. So we can look at Everything that Jesus has done and the impact that he's made on this world, whether we know him as Savior or not, we can recognize him as one of the greatest or the greatest of all time. And so I, I have Colossians. It's not on the computer or anything. I just want to read this to you real quick and uh, to kind of get a gauge or to set the, 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 the tempo for the day. And it says this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17. It says that he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, in the visible and in the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by all things hold together. And so we recognize him as the greatest of all time. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, it says this. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing. No, that's the wrong one. I'm sorry. <laughs> Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that, every, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we recognize Jesus as the greatest of all time. And so I want to go through and kind of work through one of the greatest stories that we can see in Scripture as, as setting Jesus up to be the greatest of all time. Now, Jesus and John, uh, we start to read through the different things that he went through. We read through his birth, and we read through uh, the different things that he was, he was doing on earth and the miracles that he was performing. And he was starting to gather a crowd, and people were following him. And, and we could re recognize that as greatness. But we know other people that can gather a crowd, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing great things. But Jesus is walking and going from place to place and, and he's, he's gathering this crowd and people are following him. He's performing miracles and he's teaching and he's showing. He's leading his disciples and he's doing a lot of great things. But yet there's, there's this whole uh, group of people that don't want it, have anything to do with him. Actually, they want to come after him. They want to kill him. The Pharisees are out to get him. The, the Jewish people uh, are, are, are not liking what he's teaching and they are adamantly against what he is what he is doing, what he's standing for, and the way that he is doing it. 
And so in John chapter 8, we see the, uh, the, the story of the, the adulterous woman who was forgiven. There was the story of, of, uh, of a woman being accused, and, and everybody was about to stone her to death. And, and Jesus says, you know, he is without sin, cast the first stone. And, and so maybe you've heard this story before, and all the men recognized the fact that they were not perfect, that they were filled with sin, and they began to drop the rocks one by one, and so they did not end up stoning this woman. And Jesus says to the woman, sin no more, go and sin no more. And then we start to catch up here in John chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus declares that he is the lie of the world. And so Jesus spoke to them again. This was all in the same context. He says, I am the light of the world and anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so what's happening here in this moment, in this time, is that Jesus is starting to declare who he is. He is starting to meet some uh, aggressive oppression, and he is going at him, uh, he's going back at him against them in the way that only Jesus can do. And so the Pharisees said to him in verse 13, you are testifying about yourself, and your testimony is not valid. So we're going to stand here as, 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 as a people that are against you, and we're going to say that your testimony, everything that you're saying is not valid. You can't do what you're doing. You can't say what you're saying. Now, I don't know how you would approach or handle a group of people that are coming against you. Me. You either get angry. It's the flight or flight, right? I'm out, or I'm going to, I'm going to fight. But Jesus so eloquent with his words. This is one of the reasons that make him the greatest. But this was like his coming out party. There's different times in scripture that we see some bold, big time things that are happening in the life of Jesus. And this is one of the things that makes him great. As we read on, it says in verse 14, even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is valid. You say it's not valid. It is. <laughs> no, it isn't. Yes, it is. Because I know where I come from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because I am not alone, but I and the Father who sent me judge together. Notice what's happening here. He is saying that he is with the Father in heaven. That is pure blasphemy if anybody was doing this and saying this that wasn't accurate. If anybody else was saying this. So the Pharisees are hearing this and they're thinking, this guy's nuts. There's no way what he's saying is true. But Jesus was who he says he is. And that's the biggest thing for us to understand is we're going to recognize the goat, the greatest of all time. We need to understand that Jesus is who he says he is. And that's what's happening in this story. He's declaring who he is. It's his coming out party. He's coming at it with, with all vigor that he could possibly have. And he's going against the people that are going against him. And he's trying to teach, he's trying to lead, he's trying to push, he's trying to encourage, he's trying to make all these things happen. But th this is him telling everybody who he is and who he was. He says again, if I judge, my judgment is true because I am not alone, but I am in the Father who sent me judge together. Even in your law, it is written that the witnesses of two men is valid. But I am the one who testifies about myself and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So he's saying, I'm with God. God's with me. We are the same. We are part of the Trinity. We are together. You know God the Father in heaven. I am him walking among you. And they asked him, where is your father? 
And he says, Jesus replies, you know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would also know my father. He spoke these words by the treasury which, uh, while teaching in the temple complex, but no one seized him because his hour had not come. They could have arrested him right there. Somebody could have taken him in, but it didn't happen. Nobody seized him at this moment because it wasn't the time for Jesus to be arrested. But he was saying things that could get him arrested. And know what's happening here. You know neither me nor my father. All these people would say, you know what? We know God. We know God the Father. But he's saying, if you think you know God the Father, you don't know him because if you can't see that I am him and he is I, then you don't know him. And so Jesus predicts his departure in verse 21. He says, and, and he said to them, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. And where I'm going, you cannot come. And so the Jew, the Jew said again, he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And then Jesus replies, you are from below, he said, but I am from above. And you are in this world and I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. And if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So it's this promise that we have. We recognize Jesus, who he says he is. We recognize him as Savior. We recognize him in our life, that we will not die to our sins. It's something that we all carry. Just like the men that were all standing around this, whim, this woman who were trying to accuse her of adultery, and she may have been guilty, but Jesus approached him, them and said, you, if you are without sins, then drop the first stone. So every single one of them recognizes the fact that they are sinners, that they're not perfect, as we sit here today, we claim and we, we stand firm on the fact that we're not perfect. Nobody that walks into these doors, into this church, is not perfect. Therefore, this church is not going to be perfect. We make mistakes. But what is beautiful about the mistakes and the sins that we commit, although we may not try to do them and sometimes we fall into them, is that Jesus is full of grace. He's a God that's full of grace and he's a God that's full of truth. And so if he's going to cover all our sins with grace there is also a truth aspect as well. And that truth is what is the penalty for sin. Now, without Jesus, the sin penalty is death. Death, not everlasting life. Because if you remember in John 3, 16, John uh, pronounces that Jesus came to this world to save the lost. And that God so loved the world that, that if you believe in him, you would not perish but have everlasting life. This everlasting life that is promised in John 3, 16 is life in heaven. But if we don't have a savior, if we don't have somebody that has paid that sin penalty, paid that sin debt for us, then we have life eternal in hell. So it's the decision that we have to make and it's a promise that is given to us and it, Jesus is declaring it right here in his words. He says, you are from below, but I'm from above. You are of this world. You live in this world. This world is yours, and you are, you are soaking in this world. But I am not of this world. I'm not a part of this. I don't have these sins. These, thing, these things that you fall to, I don't fall to. There's no reason for me to pay the sin penalty. There's no reason for me to pay the debt. I told you that if you die, you will die in your sins. And if you don't believe me, that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so they ask, who are you? 
Precisely what I've been telling you from the very beginning, Jesus told you. I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me, the one being capitalized, that's God the Father, sent me is true. And what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. And they didn't know who he was speaking to them. Uh, They didn't know that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them again, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that that I am. Again, this is a time in which Jesus is declaring the fact that he and one, God are one. The great I am. He says, I am. And he said that I do not do, I, I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. And he has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. So Jesus is standing with these guys, and he's talking about what he's about to approach into, the, the, the idea of truth and freedom. And we see in just a moment where he's going. At. Before I read on a little bit, I want to show you something that I saw recently, and it opened up the world of context for me. And I want to share this with you because I think this will help us in our journey in understanding Jesus and who he is and how it all ties in, even with the Old Testament and how scripture all comes together. And it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, animation that, that we can all follow along, I believe. So if we can, let's get that going. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, 
God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends and the snake crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus's power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. All right. Hey, this is Tim. And this is John. We Those are the animators for it, and they introduced themselves. Sorry for cutting that off. But anyway, uh, you get the idea. And I think when I saw that, I felt like it painted such a beautiful portrait of exactly what we're talking about. And I want you to understand that in this, in this place, that is what's happening. He's, he, he is beginning to explain everything that we just learned there to these Pharisees, to these people that were coming against him. And as he's doing that, they're saying, well, hey, we come from Abraham. And so in verse 30 of the same John chapter 8, he says this, he says, or it says this, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. They're starting to catch on. And I think that that's what happens. I think that um, we have to actually be, believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That's like the hardest thing I believe it is in faith and in Christianity is am I willing to, by faith, believe that he really is who he says he is? And as he's standing among these people, they're starting to believe it. 
They hear him and they see where he's going from. And I think sometimes it's just like blinders. I don't know if you ever had those red glasses as a kid where you could see the hidden messages on, on pages. If you wore the glasses, but you took the glasses off, it was just red scribbles all over the place. You know what I'm talking about? I think that's kind of how life is sometimes. And the red glasses are this, this viewfinder in understanding the scripture, understanding the gospel. And that Jesus is who he says he is. And when we believe it, we begin to see a clearer picture. And so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, right? You will see the truth. And the truth will set you free. We are the descendants of Abraham, they answered to him. And we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? And what's kind of funny about this statement in itself is that they were probably saying this while also looking over their shoulders at the Roman guards that were pretty much holding them as slaves. And all throughout their history, they were slaves at different times, but they never claimed that they were. Even under the rules of different people, they would claim that they were never enslaved. But yet they were. But again, this is seeing with the wrong blinders on. They're thinking earth. They're thinking freedom on earth. And Jesus responded to them, I assure you, anyone who commits a sin is a slave of sin. And see, he's thinking beyond this earth. They're thinking being a slave and being owned by slave masters and having to do different things. But Jesus, just as the serpent, is saying that sin is what you are a slave to. And this world is full of it. And although I am not of this world, you are of this world. And he says, a slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. And therefore, if the son sets you free, you really, are, you really will be free. And I know that you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word is not welcome among you. And I speak what you have seen in the presence of the Father. Therefore... You do not have, you, you, uh, you do what you have heard from your father. And they said, our father is Abraham. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus replied, you would do what Abraham did. But you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. That is what I heard from God. And Abraham did not do this. You are doing what your father does. Now, this statement is pretty powerful because they said, our father's Abraham. And he says, Abraham wouldn't do this. I'm speaking the truth to you, and it's coming from the father. And if he, the father in heaven, is not your father, then the father that you have is sin, is Satan. We weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I come from God and I am here. For I don't come on my own, but he has sent me. So why do you understand? Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. Again, they are trapped and enslaved by the, certain that we, the serpent that we see in the video, Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning and has, stood, has not stood to tell the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature 
because he is a liar and the father of liars. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? Because Jesus knows that he is without sin. So all of them are, he's saying to all of them, who, can, who of you can convict me of sin? And I tell the truth. Why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. And Jesus and, and Abraham, this is how he responds to that. And the Jews responded to him, aren't you right in saying that you are a Samaritan and that you have a demon? And Jesus is like, I don't have a demon. Listen, they thought that he was crazy. And they're thinking the only reason, the only thing that can explain what is happening right now is that this man must be, must be possessed. But Jesus says, on the contrary, I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my glory. The one who seeks it also judges. I assure you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death ever. If you keep my word, if you follow my commands, if you are with me, you will have eternal life. And the Jews said, now we know that you're a demon. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. All the prophets, all the kings, everybody that has lived on this earth at this point had died. They were filled with sin, and even though they had good intentions, even like David, a, God, a man after God's own heart, had sins in his life. And he was a slave to the serpent that was sin. And Jesus is declaring in this moment, in this time, that is not me, I do not have that, I am free of sin. Who in here could convict me of sin? Can anybody do that? No, you can't. Because I am with the Father, and the Father is with me. Me and the Father, we're one. And so this is the point where things get a little bit dicey for, for Jesus. But he says, um, on the contrary, I honor my Father. Oh, I'm beyond that, right? Yeah. Verse 52. And the Jews said, now we know that you're a demon. Jesus, uh, Abraham died, and so did the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death, death, death ever. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Even the prophets died. Who do you pretend to be? He's like, goodness gracious, I've been telling you this entire time. If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father, you say about him, he is our God. He is the one who glorifies me. Which is major blasphemy if it's not true, right? Saying that God glorifies this man on earth. And you have never known him, but I know him. If I were to say that I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham was overjoyed, and he would see my day. He saw it and has rejoiced. And the Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet. How, could, how have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, I assure you, before Abraham was, I am. And this is a mind-blowing statement that Jesus makes. Abraham, who had lived ages ago, the father of all these nations that goes way back into history, who the one they would follow, they say, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a child of Abraham, he is our father. And Jesus explains that I'm with the father and the father's with me. And they say, how can you even know Abraham? You're just a young guy. And he declares that before Abraham even existed, I am. And that statement, I am, I mentioned earlier, is the, the, the name of God that God gives to Moses when the burning bush is happening in the Old Testament. So when he says that I am, even before Abraham, 
I am. In the minds of all the Jewish people that are hearing this, they know exactly what he's saying. And they're either going to believe it or they're not going to believe it. And in verse 59, at that, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple complex. And so I read this story to you to understand that Jesus is, is who he says he is. And you can live in this life and, and, and either believe that he's not or that he is. There's really just two options. Some people waver and they kind of hang on both. But I want to encourage you today to recognize the greatness of who he is and the more that you understand and read his word and know his character and see who he is, you begin to understand all that he really is. And he is the greatest. And for us to be able to recognize that Jesus is the greatest of all time, we need to be able to recognize and understand that he is who he says he is. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel for more messages like this one.